Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by Axiom, a recognized leader in the business of law. Axiom provides tech-enabled legal contracts and compliance solutions for large enterprises. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot, and we're excited to announce that our audio-based 12-session business development challenge will be available on October 1st. 12 practical execution-oriented steps to predictable business development success. Go to leftfoot.com for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest leads his organization in their mission to support and develop lawyers across the arc of their careers as they advance to new levels of leadership and responsibility. He teaches law firm leaders, partners, associates, and general counsel, collaborating with his colleagues and other school faculty. Prior to his current position, he was the Director of Professional Development at Goodwin Proctor. The director of Harvard Law School Executive Education, Professor Scott Westfall, welcome to Left Foot. Good morning, Nicole. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. I am as well. Thank you for being a guest on our program, Scott. Scott, you recently co-authored an article titled Leveraging the Strengths of Millennials, Finding Common Ground and Hidden Opportunities. You represented the Baby Boomer View, working with your co-author who represented or provided the millennial point of view. What did you learn through working with your co-author that was surprising or unexpected about the viewpoint of millennials? I think what jumped forward for me in particular was the incredible impatience for impact that the millennial generation has. And they don't necessarily share it with those of us who are older. It's kind of a a hidden pact in a way amongst each other. And they're kind of waiting for the opportunity to thrive, but they're increasingly impatient. Every blank, my co-author is, you know, an amazing young woman. And she was very excited to share with me just the level of desire that this generation has for their voices to be heard and how impatient they get when their their opportunities are narrowed within organizations and their voices are either discounted or not solicited. I remember being 25. I'm sure you do too. Why was it different for us? Is it just we felt like it was disrespectful to really say, hey, I want more? Or where is this difference coming from? A couple of factors that I think really make a difference. I don't believe that the motivational forces, you know, that motivated the two of us when we were younger are substantially different than what motivates younger people now. But the context in which they're operating is so different. They have grown up in a world of the most transparent, you know, generation that's ever existed, really. Everything is available to them. And through social media, and other forums, their, their voices are constantly being solicited and they're finding and developing their own communication vehicles, programs, apps to allow their voices to thrive and be heard. As they do that on their own through all of these different technologies that they're developing and using constantly, and they are 
increasingly finding the power of their collective voice in a way that just wasn't available to us. We didn't have the ability to come together as a generation and you know express our voice. Probably the last generation that did, of course, was the Vietnam generation, and they did because they were under threat of being called to go to war, and they protested. But after that, growing up in the 70s and 80s, there, there really wasn't the kind of vehicle for mass expression or individuality even to come through in such a public open forum. And the challenge for organizations now is organizations led by people like us just expect that, you know, they'll wait their turn for their voice to be heard. And it's just not possible anymore that, you know, the genie has been let out of the bottle. Every generation, to your point, the Vietnam generation, the generations that came before, we all felt that there was something different about how we would approach the world based on what was available to us and the points that we were starting our careers and formulating the way we were going to contribute to society. You know, that said, as we look at the similarities and we look at the differences, how do you suggest in, to your clients, the law firms, how do you suggest that they accommodate and really make adjustments so that we can have a, a very high-functioning, very inspired and contributing group of associates and, and millennials? How do we adjust as firms, as professionals to be able to work with these groups without really, frankly, dismissing the needs of the people that came before them? Also a really important point and about dismissing the needs of the people before them. One of the most motivating factors for me and collaborating with Avery to write this article was to bridge the gap rather than widen it. You know, there are a lot of speakers and writers out there who are describing millennials basically as, you know, people from Mars and different from any people who've ever existed on the planet in its history. And the more that they describe the the huge gap, I think you would agree, we sense resentment among older generations. Who? Why do these people feel entitled to be different? Why do they want their voices to be heard? The differences are emphasized. The wider the gap gets, the less ability organizations, firms have to take advantage of the incredible strengths that this generation will bring to their organizations. You know, we mentioned in the article that we need to get back to a more common reference point. We read Shakespeare 500 years later because people haven't really changed that much. What motivates people are similar. The social context in which we act upon our motivations change. And and the social context all around them changed. And what they realized is when they can have their voices be heard and contribute, things can improve. And what I try to tell firms is, okay, first of all, you need to drop the resentment that they are operating differently than you are. If you were their age... The same things would motivate you as motivate them. You would be acting the same way. They have market power in a way that you never had. That's just too bad. It's the way markets work. You understand markets as client service facing people. The talent market is so much more competitive now. Millennials have expectations of having their voices be heard and they want to be included and they want early responsibility because it's easy for them to find other jobs. It was not easy for us prior to the internet and LinkedIn and social networks to change employers or to compare employers. The market data is so rich now. It's empowering them as consumers of the workplace. And the great opportunity is if a firm can figure out then, okay, let's raise my game. I'm going to be a great place to work and I'm going to provide avenues to let their voices be heard, to leverage their great strengths, understanding 
in the law firm context, for example, they're not ready to give sophisticated technical legal advice to my clients as a second year associate. On the other hand, there's a lot of things they know about and see that they could improve in the way we serve clients. Technology, for example, they're on the front force of you know how a deal gets done or what's happening, litigation research and how they're interacting with people doing due diligence. They can quickly find efficiencies and be empowered to use technology and collaborative technologies to communicate better, to improve the way the whole process works and improve client service. But a lot of times firms aren't just engaging them. A lot of firms will have a technology committee, for example, and there's no one under on the technology committee, which makes no sense. Great point. We hear this with diversity too, right? We always hear that, hey, look at how we're similar. The article noted that we're all motivated by mastery, meaning, and purpose. This is not so unique to this group that is in the workforce, now in force. That said, Scott, is there an example of a firm doing a, a good job of really embracing the different generations of employees that are now you know, within the firm, focusing on the strengths of what each generation can bring? What is a well-functioning firm that pays attention to that look like? Very good question. What I'm excited about is I'm seeing some hopeful step forwards. There are some, you know, major MLAW 20 firms now that are running innovation competitions, for example, among their associates. The firms that are more aware of these trends are starting to solicit associate voices across a number of different aspects to try to empower them. Um, One of our partner firms here that we work with a lot, the firm Millbank based in New York, has a program with us where they're sending all of their third, fourth, fifth, and sixth year associates to Harvard Law School for a week of business skills and leadership and innovation training. Each year, the associates will come for a week throughout a four-year period. And it's, it's an incredible investment and it's paying off in the way those associates feel empowered, the way they're much more able to have a sophisticated business conversation with clients that are more ready to do client development earlier and the innovation work we've done with them is, you know, sparking them to look at things and think of things differently, which I think is really exciting. I'm sure that builds tremendous confidence for them too, because I think a lot of it is a lack of opportunity to really look at that part of what will be their business, right? The non-legal side of it, the, the client side, the business side, to look at the numbers, to feel comfortable. What a great program. And I'm sure one that they respond well to. We have heard at Left Foot, in our sweet spot, which is business development and client retention. You know, millennials are, this is part of the role that they're excited about. They want to talk to clients. They want to hear from clients. They know that to be a partner in a firm, they're going to have to get involved with business development and be good at it because they'll have more control over their career and, and, and how they spend their time. In that sense, is there advice you would give to firms about how to engage associates in that business development, you know, client-facing relationship? One of the analogies we put forth in the article that talk about a lot is this generation's laser focus on client service as consumers. They understand better than, you know, any generation previously because of the power of social media how much impact they can have when they focus on quality of service delivery. And the example I sometimes use is the food revolution that we're experiencing all over the world. When I was growing up, you were growing up, the food really wasn't very good. You know, I ask a a group of participants of senior law firm leaders, for example, at a program, I'll say, you know, how many of you, when you choose a new restaurant to go, always read the online reviews? And of course, they all read the online reviews. And I ask how many of you have written reviews 
and maybe two out of 50 have written a review. And I said, well, who's, who's writing the reviews? And they don't know. And I said, well, it's those millennials you're always complaining about are the ones, why are they doing it? They're doing it because what they realize through social media, when their voice is heard, the restaurant either improves food, parking, restaurant, waiting service, whatever, um, or it goes out of business. The food revolution is being fueled by all of this, these feedback loops based around the quality of the of the user experience. And what's wonderful about that is you can then flip it. If you're going to bring in this generation into your law firm, a client service organization, you flip it and you ask them to be keen observers of how your clients are experiencing the service you're providing. One thing I've pointed out recently to law firm leaders, for example, is that it's pretty much pay to play with major clients that they require you as a law firm to second associates into your firm on your dime for, you know, six months to a year. And this is happening all over, you know, the legal profession as clients have gained market power, they're demanding secondments. Well, one of the areas in which I'm teaching now is innovation and design thinking. And the design thinking process, the inquiry process is really, really rich. When it, when a designer goes into an organization with a human-centered design perspective, they keenly observe how the clients are working. And they can push and ask the clients to identify the pain points. Where are they struggling in the way that they work? If you trained your seconded associates in advance on design inquiry, and made it be part of their secondment, agreed upon with the client that they're going to do a design inquiry as part of the secondment and issue a report back on what they find in here to spot opportunities where the firm and the client can collaborate to improve client service. I think that would be electrifying and a much better use of the time. Now what happens is the associates go on secondment. People kind of forget that they're gone. They come back and quickly they're thrown back into their work. Maybe one or two partners talk to them about their experience, but life moves on. And then about six months months later, maybe the company calls and asks the talented seconded associate to come in-house. There's real risk of disruption happening from the outside if law firms aren't going out and learning new ways to listen and collaborate. And I wouldn't do that with the senior partners. Right now, the way, I mean, I know this is your business more than mine, but you'll send the very senior partner out, maybe the chairman of the firm, to do interviews with the general counsel. At that level, there are important conversations to be had, but it's not about the way the work is getting done because neither of them know how the work is getting done. And I think associates would love to be empowered to do that. So for our listeners, we aired an episode, it was episode number 72 on Left Foot with Dan Yee from the Department of Justice. And a big part of that episode was talking about applying design thinking in the legal environment, frankly, just in the business environment, but how, you know, you could look at a situation much in a much different way and, and really find efficiencies. And he used the example in the podcast episode of trial prep. And how by using Kanban and really planning out trial prep, you could reduce the stress involved with the timelines and everything around trial prep. So I think there's definitely something there. Dan, Dan is one of the most you know creative, brilliant young lawyers I've ever met. And uh, he and I connected about two years ago now. He comes and helps me teach my innovation course for Harvard Law students and focusing on explaining what design thinking is like. And his mind works you know, a million miles a minute. He's a great example of a millennial lawyer empowered now with a set of very helpful, practical tools. He's an army of one right now at the Department of Justice, but I'm hoping that to develop this whole next generation of Dan Yees, I think 
that the acceleration of how law firms add value to clients and how in-house legal departments work, how law becomes more interdisciplinary and better integrated into business itself will happen if we unlock that power. A lot of the interviews that we do are inspiring. That one, I was like, wow, there is something here. And I'm thrilled to hear that you teach that in your course. I mean, just the idea, Clock is doing such terrific work of saying, there's another way to look at this and we can be more efficient and we can look at outcomes. And I think that's a great example of what Clock is really communicating is that you can approach a legal matter by looking at the potential outcome and then working back from there to say, do we want to actually go down this path, basically to the outcome? Another tool I'll mention just because we're, you know, we're talking about what firms can do. The design thinking company, IDEO, they have a terrific tool called the creative difference assessment. And they'll go into an organization and they'll measure how ready the organization is essentially for innovation across, you know, different factors. And some of those directly tie into this conversation. And I think law firms and in-house departments really need to pay attention to those. A couple of the ones I think that particularly matter and are challenging for lawyers and legal organizations. One is that the organization has to have and feel like there's a purpose beyond just making money. A lot of times legal organizations, especially law firms, kind of have lost sight of describing what their values are and what holds them together as organizations. I remember when I went from law over to McKinsey, it was so different that you know everybody there knew what their core values were and lived them day to day and used them as a, as a framework to make decisions about how they were gonna operate, which was fascinating. And I came back to the law firm world after that. And what I recognized is that most law firms, when you, when you ask them what their values are, what their mission is, it's content that was written by the marketing department to put up on the firm's website and no one at the firm has actually read it. The millennials are, you know, because again, the transparency of the labor market, they want to have impact and they're going to gravitate towards organizations that are outlining a higher purpose. We see law school applications dropping and dropping and dropping. And the latest data was there are fewer and fewer people who are scoring at the top echelon of the LSAT who are applying to law school. I think there's a talent drain happening because we're not articulating the purpose well enough within organizations. There's other concepts that IDEO identifies. Does the organization have a culture of empowerment. And we've been talking about that. Most law firms do not. Or what does collaboration look like within the organization, interdisciplinary and breaking down hierarchy. And fortunately, a lot of firms hierarchy is really, really present. And, you know, I'll see behaviors like there's a there's a deal team, for example, and the fourth year associate is really deferential to the fifth year associate because he's a fifth year and I'm a fourth year. And they establish these hierarchies in, in ways that really cut off dialogue and innovation. Another really critical factor is whether an organization is open to experimentation. Innovative organizations are used to the idea that the experiment is worth doing. Even if it fails, you learn from it and you try again. And we have developed a one strike and you're out kind of mentality in law all the way through from legal education forward. And I'll tell you that that it starts at schools like ours. The idea that you come to law school and you get one exam as your entire grade for the semester. Feedback is only for evaluation, not development 
development. You don't learn anything through the feedback loops we have established in law school traditionally. And it's no surprise that then when lawyers organize themselves into firms, the evaluation processes are about ranking and ordering for the purpose of promotion and bonuses, but not giving feedback and helping people develop and grow. That's the way entrepreneurs work is that they try something, they get feedback, they learn from it, and they improve. And we haven't developed that mentality in the law. It's supposed to be absolutely perfect in the first instance. We have to drop that or, or law is really ripe for disruption from the outside. And now a word from our sponsor. Axiom Solutions combine legal experience, technology, and data analytics to deliver work in a way that dramatically reduces risk, cost, and cycle time. With over 1,200 lawyers and 2,000 plus employees across three continents, we experience a nerdy excitement from improving the way legal, compliance, and contracts work is done. For more information, go to axiomlaw.com. Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you to our 31,000 podcast listeners. Are you looking to refresh your business development efforts? The Left Foot 12 Session Business Development Challenge will refresh your efforts in three areas. Business development grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to leftfoot.com. You know, lawyers tend to be risk averse, and it's probably the way they're educated. And I would definitely welcome your opinion on that. That idea that experimentation can occur. I had a lawyer on my podcast say that he had made a mistake, and he said, I made a mistake. And he goes, And I reflect on my career 30 years later saying that I made a mistake. And it was so unusual to acknowledge that. That idea that a risk-averse profession generally, and then that idea that making mistakes is that career-ending or career-modifying. If you can comment on whether that is inherent, and then we'll talk about purpose. Starting with that idea of vulnerability and admitting a mistake and mindset and where you come from is really important. In the law school classroom, you know, the traditional law school classroom, you know, there's a lot of tension and pressure. I think it's only gotten worse in some ways as our student body has diversified. The stakes are higher when the original Socratic method was, you know, really coming into vogue and law school was more like a boot camp than anything else. You know, everybody attending here were white men from privileged families. And yes, there was risk in the class, but not nearly as much as there is today when we have students from all over the world with extremely different backgrounds. And, you know, the the performance pressure you're under when you're speaking up in class can be really extreme and, and harsh for people. And I think it inhibits students from giving their most creative answers. Not always. There are professors who are very good at drawing that out. There's still a fundamental disconnect there from law as a conversation to law as an adversarial, completely adversarial exercise. I did not practice litigation in part because I like value add. I'm not a, I'm not a zero sum law is war kind of person, but most of law school is geared towards that mentality and that perspective from traditional forces. The other thing it taps into this whole nature nurture, what is the lawyer personality like? I've become a 
fan of the positive psychology movement. The founder of that movement, Professor Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania, wrote his initial book, Authentic Happiness. And there's three or four pages dedicated to lawyers. Understanding that lawyers have much higher depression rates, for example, one of the things that he points out that I thought was brilliant is that as lawyers were professionally selected to have a pessimistic mindset, professionally, that's important sometimes. If I'm a lawyer representing a client doing a deal, I know you work in private equity. I have to spot all the risks and do the due diligence and assume that there are problems all over the place. And when I do that 12 to 14 hours a day and I'm highly paid for it professionally, it impacts the way my brain works otherwise. And for me to step out of that negative, pessimistic framing and move towards an innovative, optimistic framing, the world of the possible can be really tough. A lot more work needs to be done. I'm seeing some people who've been through the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology program. My, my friend and colleague, Paula Davis-Locke, does this, uh, goes into firms and talks about optimism and framing and resilience. Students who take my innovation and design course here, I get such great feedback for it because they're so energized that they've been able to create rather than pick apart things. It just energizes people to see the possible. And we have to figure out more ways to, to do that for the profession. Finance professionals, they tend to do something similar. They tend to look for the reasons not to do, where to cut costs and and where costs seem inflated versus expenditures required for growth and the financial risk required for growth. There might be a huge application, or it sounds like there is, for this across the business schools as well. Awareness that your mind is going towards that, it's kind of like addiction therapy. You know, if you just say, I have a pessimistic framing mindset, you might get over it, name it, and then flip your brain That's what I'm encouraging firms to start doing now. Excellent. Quick point on purpose, and then we'll definitely want to chat about some of the other work that you do. One of the things that we hear usually in the end of our podcast episodes when I ask our guests to talk about anything that they feel is important that they want our listeners to hear, we often hear, especially seasoned lawyers, most of them are partners in firms, reflecting on the fact that they got into law as a profession because they thought they would do good work. And they reflect on their pro bono where there's often a reflection, because of course we're talking about business development and client acquisition, and sometimes that's not always their most favorite part. Rewarding, but challenging. But they talk about the profession and the pro bono work. When you reference purpose earlier, I mean, how often does that come up? That you know, a firm basically says, hey, the reason you would want to come to our firm besides doing good work for clients is the fact that you would have that opportunity to do strong pro bono work. A challenge is if you look at firm websites, they're all going to have that message. At some point, firms will always be talking about the way they contribute back to the communities in which they work. The challenge is whether or not, you know, organizationally, there's agreement about what the purpose of the organization really is and that it feels like there's a higher purpose. And it's not just about doing pro bono work. The idea that we're we're supporting these really important, interesting businesses and solving challenging problems and we're creative, thoughtful people. There's a lot of purpose you can pull from the nature of the organizations themselves, but they just don't talk about it. I think lawyers are particularly task-focused people who get overwhelmed by all the tasks they have to do and they're not stepping back to reflect on those values, talk about them. Sometimes I give advice to partners, for example, when's the last time you talked to the senior associates about why it's great to be a partner? You're hoping that they'll all try to sacrifice as much as possible and you'll pick out the ones who are really you know, great and make them partner. But when was the last time you talked to them about why it's 
special to be a partner even or if you're in a practice group you know what's special about this group how are we different from our competition where are we growing where where do we want to be in a micro way it doesn't have to be at the firm level you can create a sense of purpose by making the team room fun by setting the context of the matter building a spirit of camaraderie in the trenches there's a lot of small ways you can create a sense of purpose too so it's big and small i could absolutely see that can you imagine being an associate and stepping into work with a client and not understanding the background that created the situation you're working on, the people. And as a leader of sales teams, we always talked about when we were working on a deal that everyone on the team should have all the information. There's a lot of times those associates are working with a client on a short call or in a meeting, transitioning out of the meeting back to the reception area where they may be asked a question or may hear something. And if they don't have all the information, they're not going to be able to respond to it or be able to report back. I heard this. Exactly. and But it also affects morale and how connected you feel to purpose. One of my programs when I ran an innovation workshop with some senior associates at Millbank, you know, letting the millennials ideate about some of these issues was interesting. One of the proposals that came back was a real pain point, a real source of frustration for us. I'll work on three or four things at a time, but I don't really know what's happening on them. Couldn't we develop an internal Twitter feed, for example, where for each of my matters, there'd be a little Twitter feed going on and, you know, people would, you know, partner comes back from a meeting saying, hey, great meeting with a client. We've got this provision done. And everybody working could just add in little snippets throughout the day. That's, that is how they communicate with each other in other aspects now. And I think it would be really empowering to share information that way and force and bring back the broader kind of team tools, processes that teams outside the law use. My dad was a nuclear submarine captain during the Cold War. And I promise you, he never went on a mission where he didn't brief his officers and thoroughly discuss what they were up to. Consulting teams, military teams, they all do this. And and law has not done it. One of the causes is there's very little team teaching in law school. So the courses I teach on problem solving and then another course on innovation are team-based courses. And I use these kind of tools with my students to get them used to it, to understand what these tools look like and how teams actually work. One of the things that I think warms my heart the most about the work I've been doing with law students is that what they also report back to me, and I see this even years later, they're still in touch with their teammates. One of my biggest concerns about legal education is that the competitive environment that's created inhibits the forming of deep trust-based relationships that later on in life can be very, very valuable. When I was at McKinsey, it was pre-LinkedIn, pre-Facebook. My Harvard, Wharton, Stanford Business School MBAs knew where all their classmates were and had stayed in touch. And law students might know where two or three people are, but they haven't traditionally built those stronger relationships. They may be loosely connected on social media now, but they, they don't have the, the deeper bonds that people who've gone through team-based learning and instruction and instruction where a cultural value is that the network is more important than the individual. If we could transform law schools to be more like that, the impact that our students would have in the world would be tripled. That is actually surprising to hear from the layperson perspective. And I'm saying that because I think a lot of people put so much value on having those relationships from these top institutions and that you would want to use those in business. My classmate, Michelle Robinson, Michelle Obama, for example, uh, you know, we didn't stay in touch. 
the power of the network and where our students end up going in the world is, is unlimited. And it's just a tragedy that they're not better connected and they haven't formed deeper trust-based relationships. One of the things that I hear from associates who leave law firms and go to other types of organizations is they truly miss law firms in that there's such special places and you're working with incredibly brilliant people and the, the kind of talent you go into the business world and you're going to get a wide range of talent and ability with any typical business or government entity. At law firms, every Every single lawyer who gets into a big firm is really smart and talented and, and they miss it. They really appreciate it if only the organization were better structured to help them build those relationships. And I think if you put team structures in place that allowed for some of that, the up or out model isn't really changing, but then the connections you feel and, and keep in touch with, if you're talking about business development, it's incredibly powerful. McKinsey never advertises. They don't need to. They have a stronger upper out model than any law firm. They're very strict about it, but they place their people into clients and they provided their people with such great team experiences, professional development along the way that they're intensely loyal. And anytime you meet someone who was at McKinsey, you'll know within the first two minutes of talking to them that they were at McKinsey. <laughs> they're very proud of that. Of course. I, I did a, an engagement survey once, and I know there's some new engagement work being done. Uh, engagement research. I've just heard about this last week, but it, it dovetailed with what I did. I did an engagement survey within a law firm. Among law firm staff, the number one most highly correlated factor with whether a staff member at this law firm felt engaged and you know satisfied at work was whether they felt proud to work at the firm. That was huge. When we did a sub-analysis, it was really interesting too because what they found was what drove whether they felt proud to work at the firm is whether in particular they had had opportunities to work on community service projects side by side with the lawyers, not pro bono work, community service work. That was of interest to me because what that means is when I get to work in a non-hierarchical environment where as a team, we're building a house for Habitat for Humanity or cleaning up a DC public school or something like that. I feel this sense of purpose and I'm really proud to work here. So breaking down hierarchy was also part of that. And again, you know, articulating purpose, breaking down hierarchies and making sure that everybody feels able to contribute it is a huge part of what's missing. Roger Meltzer from DLA Piper at Legal Week this year really talked about the legal ecosystem that he has the pleasure of leading. And the majority of the people in that ecosystem are not lawyers. They are other people. They are project managers. They are technologists. They are business development, client-facing individuals. They are legal service professionals who are not lawyers. When we talk about all these other people in the ecosystem of these firms today, I'm sure that is really causing lawyers to say, I need to embrace and, and respect and, and value what they all bring. It's huge. And in-house, they have, through corporate structures, worthy titles, and they're included in, you know, in leadership circles. And it's a very different environment. In law firms, they still have the audacity to call all of those other people non-lawyers most of the time. And we like to say here, by the way, there's a lot more of them than you. And you're the only ones who seem to define the world by who is not you. Doctors don't go into hospitals and you're a non-doctor, right? No, you're a nurse, you're a nurse practitioner, you're an expert on this, that, or the other thing. And there's there's respect that way. This idea that there are second-class citizens, it cuts off so much 
in, in terms of, you know, engagement, motivation, but also underneath that innovation that could happen. There, there's real tension in organizations about this whole idea of second class citizenship and the better firms are starting to have professional development programming and pay different titles, the professional advancement and professionalism of their people who are doing other jobs than practicing law. Before we let you go, I want to ask a few questions about other work that you've done related to law firm performance. We've touched on it a bit, management rewards, work with feedback systems, again, that you've mentioned. You wrote a book in 2008, You Get What You Measure. Frankly, one of my favorite sayings is you can't manage what you don't measure. It's something I I talk about a lot. If you look at where someone is having success, look at their strengths, allow them to stretch out in their strengths, and you provide them with additional ability to build on those strengths, that there's actually more positive results of doing that than really focusing on those areas where they might have developmental needs. If you could talk about that, to me, that was fascinating. And having worked in corporate America, if we had just spent more time working on people's strengths, working where they needed improvement, but not really focusing on that, we might've had different results. This ties into so many themes that I try to integrate in in all the work I do and my teaching. The idea that you're empowering people to work in their best zone of impact, identifying their strengths and figuring out how to improve them is really critical to their finding individual purpose in the organization and their feeling engaged, but also to the teams being able to best leverage their skills. And if you've got team processes where people are actively talking about and appreciating and building upon each other's strengths, that improves the team outcome. If you have professional development systems, the evaluation system and the training and development systems that are focused more on developing and encouraging areas of strength, you're going to get a lot more from each employee. Of course, there needs to be some training that gets everybody up to a level of competency in core areas where they need to be competent. But then we see that everybody has particular strengths. And there's great research showing that when you invest in training someone on their strengths, they experience geometric improvement in their ability within that strength. If you're investing in developing an area of relative weakness, they make progress, but more slowly and they're less engaged with that. So what I have yet to see is firms really doubling down and say, okay, let's take 20 of our associates we already know across the firm and in various departments who are really great writers. And we're going to put them through advanced legal writing training with the best specialists in the country. And we're going to assign them work for the next six months with the best partner writers at the firm. I I would love to see what happens. You're going to create the next super generation of legal writers and teachers of legal writing by that kind of focus. And the people who are chosen for that are going to be so thrilled that you're investing in their strength rather than saying, okay, you're going to go to the remedial writing training. You dumb down the training. So it's the same for everybody across all levels. Firms are too hesitant, I think, to call out areas of strength. And there's real tension among partners. This is something I've talked to partner groups about. This unfortunate pressure within a firm to to pretend as a partner that you are absolutely great at everything a partner does. And we all know that's not true. Everybody has to be good enough at you know all the things you have to do, but then everybody's going to have a couple of spikes. There may be, I am a particular subject matter expert, or I am really great at business development, or I lead you know people in teams really well. And there's tremendous psychological pressure on, on the partner, for example, who are, you know, partners are treated as second-class citizens if they are considered a service partner because they are really good organizationally and with client relations and 
and subject matter expertise, but they're not a big rainmaker. And they're treated as second class citizens within the partnership with kind of a wink. There ought to be a way to celebrate their contributions and understand that, you know, those are equal and you need a mix of people across all of those spikes and strengths. But instead, the service type partner goes home every night wondering whether they've actually added value. They feel bad about themselves. They're trying to challenge themselves to do some rainmaking, you know, at the level that the key rainmakers in the firm achieve. And they feel constantly bad that they won't be at that level. And I just think that's that's psychological pressure that leads to the depression rates we see across the legal profession. We're all trying to be perfect at everything. And I'm sorry, but it's not possible. Great dialogue. Something we're hearing from different guests is that there seems to be a trend today. And it's, again, something I'm hearing even more recently, like in the last several months. Lawyers can actually create a terrific career for themselves by focusing on how they're different from other lawyers, not better than other lawyers. This is the whole idea of differentiation and niching and power niching and developing a specialty. I can be really good at this one thing. I don't have to be that terrific at everything else. It typically would be aligned to a certain kind of law or a certain practice or a certain specialty or or client base or type of case. But I think that might be a really strong change that especially those service lawyers can buy into. I'll give you an example, Scott. We had a employment lawyer come on and say that he is known for being the authority in this particular aspect of employment law. And people call him because I have become an authority in this. And he goes, technically, I'd be a service partner. I am now a rainmaker because people call me. Attributing to the mix, I think, you know, the way compensation committees work and the metrics that are used to value contributions, I think there's a lot of room for improvement. I also think the lack of women in leadership positions on executive committees, compensation committees and stuff is affecting some of what's measured, frankly, and what is valued. And I think it would dramatically change if those if, if every large firm said, okay, our comp committee is going to be half women partners right now, you would see the pay gap disappear and you would say other things being valued and, and the discussion would start changing about contributions back to the organization rather than the, the predominantly male outlook of I'm king of the hill because I brought in the most money. And we all know that the money that got brought in was a team effort. The incentives are, are misaligned that way. And I think we could add a lot of value by starting to change those discussions. Right now, the way the systems are set up, up within most firms, it's emphasizing the building of technical legal skills and the rest is sink or swim. When you start building those skills, valuing them, measuring them, you'll create a different kind of legal organization that is more adaptable to the changing legal profession and will be more likely to stay out in front of change rather than let change happen to the firm. Reflecting on our conversation and definitely that last point, the fact that we're having this discussion about the opportunities that exist to improve the culture, to change the culture, to adjust and really prepare the the profession and the firms for the future, a future that will look different. The profession is being forced to this because of technology, because of efficiencies. Firms cannot exist the way they did 20 years ago. There's going to need to be change. Terrific content. Absolutely appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners, Scott. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? 
One is that I am so grateful and applaud you for not once saying legal industry in this conversation. I still am one of the old-fashioned people who call law a profession because it speaks to the higher purpose and calling that should be part of every legal organization and within every lawyer's heart. That's why the profession started. And as law firms started to think, okay, we need to run ourselves like businesses and people started using the word industry, we fell away from some of those values. And it's one of the reasons that people are at sea when they're trying to find the purpose of the organization. To me, it's a a bit tragic not to tie into our deeper roots and commonality of people who are also at some level public servants and contributing back to society in very meaningful ways. So thank you. Getting back to the idea of teams and empowerment, there needs to be a lot more investment within legal organizations. There will be a significant continuing talent drain if we don't figure out how to work in a way that engages millennials and helps them feel empowered, even if they're not giving, again, the technical, you know, sophisticated legal answer the first day they, they come in. One of my friends from my McKinsey days, Prasad Seti, and he is the head of people analytics and compensation at Google. He runs basically a giant laboratory within Google to find out what motivates people and how their team should work and do leaders matter. And they did a study that was written up in the New York Times, what Google learned about teams um, maybe two years ago now. And, you know, the biggest factor that came out for them is whether teams felt a sense of psychological psychological safety and could everybody contribute? Was everybody valued in the team? And the number one point of intervention, I think, for law firms and even in-house departments is how often are you working to create through tools, processes, active conversation environments where there's psychological safety and everybody can contribute, add in their strengths that you're enhancing through professional development. The ecosystem that Roger talked about is going to be severely threatened unless that concept can come forward in a new way. Thank you so much for for this opportunity. It's been a great pleasure. I look forward to continuing these conversations with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.